Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Racism has cost the U.S. economy $16 trillion over the last two decades. That's according to economist Dana Peterson. She looked at the racial gaps, including housing and employment, when she was at Citibank. Her report is the focus of a recent panel discussion I moderated for the University of Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, and the Connecticut Mirror. Today, where we live, we listened to that conversation recorded on Zoom with Peterson, Connecticut Attorney General William Tong, and Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I started the conversation with Dana, who has a Connecticut connection. She did her undergraduate studies at Wesleyan University in Middletown. Now, Dana, I wanted to start with you. We're going to talk about your landmark 2020 study on racial inequality. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, I mentioned that you're a graduate of Wesleyan. And at the time your study was released last year, you also shared publicly how you experienced racism during your time at Wesleyan and also early in your career. And so I'm wondering if you could share some of those stories with us. Well, you know, I I think um, certainly I remember sharing that uh, when I was at Citigroup, I didn't put my picture up on my profile for emails because I was concerned about people potentially um, judging and making, uh, you know, thinking things that weren't necessarily true, uh, just given um, what I looked like, uh, being a woman, being, you know, African-American. And so, unfortunately, you know, that led me to believe that, you know, I'd get along better if I didn't put my picture up um, so that I would just basically leave people guessing until they met me. Um, you know, that was very early on in my career, but but over time, I still never put my picture up. But I'm proud to say that where I am now, the conference board, yes, you know, I feel comfortable doing that. And I think that's so important for young people to feel comfortable in their own skin and be able to um, operate in their own cultures um, and be accepted wherever they are. You told Bloomberg that when you attended Wesleyan, you know, you encountered some classmates who questioned your admission to this elite school and whether it was a result of affirmative action policies rather than your own merit. And so when I read that, I thought about all the microaggressions that people of color experience every day. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that. And when you shared that anecdote with us that early on in your career, you were not confident of sharing your picture because you were worried about how people uh, would um, see you. I mean, I'm wondering, is that the cumulative impact of when we talk about these microaggressions that we all experience on this panel? I would say yes. Um, you know, certainly when it comes to higher education and college, I mean, the assumption oftentimes of, of people, some people is that, you know, if there's a person of color there that, 
they're there because there's some quota, right? And that, you know, they're on some big scholarship, you know, usually an athletic scholarship and all sorts of, you know, stereotypes about why people are there and that they're not necessarily there because of their own merit or their own talent. And I remember my response was, well, you know, how did I get into the school? Well, I applied and they accepted me. <laughs> and also my parents and I paid a lot of money <laughs> for me to go there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really sad that, I mean, this was, you know, 25 years ago now, um, but potentially some students are still facing these kinds of things today on campuses where a lot of assumptions are made about their intelligence, about their abilities um, that really should not be made. So knowing that, a little bit about your background, again, thank you for sharing that with us. I wanted you to talk about when, you know, what prompted you to do this study? Again, looking at the economic impacts of racism on individuals as well as our society as a whole, thinking to you about your experiences as a Black woman and what the numbers can tell people, We know, right? It's not emotional, but the data is there and how are we going to approach this? Sure, absolutely. Um, the report was actually in response to the death and murder of Mr. George Floyd last year and what was going on in terms of people protesting in the streets. And, um, you know, a lot of folks were, were kind of surprised while, you know, many persons of color just weren't surprised. <laughs> we were saying, well, this is, you know, a continuation of behaviors that, you know, extend back to the days of slavery and Jim Crow. And, um, you know, where it just seemed like it was just, it's just okay for violence against, you know, persons of color. Um, and so, you know, being at an investment bank and in the research division, I was also on a diversity committee and we sat around and we're trying to think about ideas of how do we address this? You know, how do we answer questions that many of our, our employees had, even our, our customers who were institutional investors for the most part? And so the idea, you know, I said, well, why don't we just write something? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what we do all day. We write research. And so um, because I was an economist, I said, well, let's look at this less from an emotional angle, but from an ec economic perspective. What are we leaving on the table by allowing there to be gaps between di different races along wages and education and access to home ownership and access to finding, financing to start a business? You know these things um, have their roots uh, from you know hundred you know hundreds of years ago um, here in, in the Americas, um, but there's no reason why we can't address them today. And one thing we found was, well, let's look at the data, right, the hard data, and come up with estimates of how much money um, is being just kind of tossed away because we're you know we as a society are allowing gaps to persist. And we came up with a really wild and, and incredible number. That was $16 trillion. Um, the U.S. economy in any one year is close to $20 trillion. So that's a lot of money that's being left on the table because people are, are not aware of or not willing to do anything about these uh, racial economic gaps. And again, this was just looking at gaps uh, for, for Black persons, but I would imagine the gaps would be even greater if we added on gaps for women um, and other uh, ethnic groups. So to put a finer point on this, that um, your report found that if four key racial gaps for Blacks, wages, education, housing, and investment, if they had been closed 20 years ago, $16 trillion could have been added to the U.S. economy. And if the gaps are closed today, 
5 trillion can be added to the US GDP over the next few years. Yes, and if we think about what that means in terms of growth, um, you know, before the pandemic, the US economy was growing around two and a half percent, right? Um, but imagine if you added two or three tenths of that, that's getting you close to 3%, right? Policies, you know, every administration wants to create policies to generate 3% growth perpetually. And it's like, well, here's something that we can do <laughs> to generate that amount of growth. And indeed, you mentioned that, suppose we close all these gaps today, um, what would growth look like over the next five years? Yes, yeah, so it's something along the lines of $5 trillion, and that's like adding a half percentage point to GDP growth, right? So that's really astounding. That's really strong growth um, that we're just foregoing by allowing these gaps to persist. We know that the pandemic has hit business owners hard. Um, we look at the greater toll that Black-owned businesses have experienced. You know, what's holding Black entrepreneurs back? when you look at the research that you've done? Well, it's fascinating that 13 trillion of that $16 trillion um, was due to the fact that you had revenues, business revenues that were never created because um, black owned businesses either didn't have access to capital to start the business or they started the business and because they didn't have access to financing, they were not able to keep the doors open. And you know these numbers sound really big, but to bring it home, imagine if six million people um, a year had a job, right? And so that's essentially what we were losing, six million jobs a year because these businesses did not have access to capital. We're gonna be returning to the economic effects of racism throughout this hour. But I wanted to also talk about the effects of racism on individuals. Dana, you were uh, very um, you know, open in sharing some of your experiences. Uh, Jay Williams, I wanted to go to you. Uh, you know, in 2017, LeBron James said it's tough being black in America. Now it's 2021. What's your response? In 2021, it's still tough being black in America. Uh, I would choose to live in no other country. Uh, that being said, it doesn't negate uh, or excuse the challenges that uh, people of color and particularly uh, black people face uh, in this community, uh, in this country. Uh, you know, all of us, uh, all, all of us as people of color can uh, share uh, experiences that I'm sure uh, are just, are both overt and macro aggressions, but also microaggressions to the point where it almost becomes background music. And that's, that's unfortunate. You just almost subconsciously react to these things uh, and, you know, as Dana was sharing some of her experiences, uh, even after having arrived here uh, four years ago, uh, I remember very uh, clearly that a very prominent business person uh, in this community who I had served on a board with over the past uh, year or so uh, saw me after a couple of months and saw that my hair had changed. I had grown my hair out. Uh, and, and after the meeting, he came up to me and said, hey, I haven't seen you in a, in a few months. And he said, when I first saw you, uh, your hair made me wonder if that would be someone who would be qualified to oversee a, a billion dollar philanthrop philanthropic institution. And the fact that he said it so casually and sort of almost jokingly, it was just shocking to me that, you know, having known me, knowing what my position is, that his first impression after having not seen me for a few months was, was that. So imagine what the impression or the thoughts are for individuals he has no relationship with, that he has no uh, experience with. 
So things like that to, um, you know, being pulled out of, uh, stopped by the police and, and, and asked to step out of my car and being told that I look like a robbery suspect uh, at about 11.30 p.m. as I was driving on my way home from church. So how I could be identified as looking like a robbery suspect uh, on, on, in the middle of the night, uh, you know, in a, in a moving vehicle, uh, driving through uh, a part of town that perhaps uh, it was perceived I shouldn't have been in. So, so, you know, you just add those things up over the course of one's life or, or career, uh, and it is difficult uh, in this country uh, and the, the, the figures that Dana had in the report were just staggering. In fact, I was reading and citing that report prior to knowing that I was going to have an opportunity to be on a panel with her. So, you know, the economic effects, but as you talked about, Lucy, the, the personal uh, costs, loss of creativity, the dehumanization of individuals uh, specifically and, and, and intentionally because of, of their race has such a uh, deleterious effect uh, on this country, in our communities, that I, it, it is hard to imagine, uh, you know, the, the losses that we've incurred in terms of productivity and creativity uh, and ingenuity and intellectual uh, contributions because of the structural racism this, this country uh, still endures. Attorney General Tong, you've also been on my show and you've been very open about your upbringing I remember you shared a story with me about something someone said to you when you were campaigning, you were asking for their vote. Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, let me just say that um, we've used the term microaggressions. I think what we've described so far are pretty macro. Um, you know, you know what people are saying to you when they say them. And, and as you say, tell these stories, Jay, Dana and, and Lucy, I think all of us had hoped that we'd reach some level of um, professional or social achievement and, and maybe it would be different. And it's really not any different than it's always been. Um, and, and for me, so on the one hand, we all face the, the really macro overt aggressions. When I was elected, I was called Kim Jong Tong uh, by um, an activist on the other side. I'm routinely uh, accused of being a, um, a sleeper cell or an agent of the Chinese Communist Party on social media. I've been called a Manchurian AG. You know, those are all obvious overt things. And I can tell you as your attorney general, I can take it. Uh, what's harder, though, is you're right, when it's more pernicious and insidious and people don't really even understand that they're being overtly and macro racist to you. And so the, the episode Lucy talked about was I was running for attorney general. I think it's fair to say that I was a leading candidate, if not lead, leading candidate. Um, and we have an old style convention here in the state where you got to go and ask delegates, about 1,200 delegates for their vote at a convention, which I won uh, with 65% of the vote. But I went to this um, delegate. I spoke to her on the phone. She uh, was a white woman attorney Democrat. Right. So should be. Uh, and I think by all rights, a progressive, open minded, you know, liberal person, um, thoughtful person. And I when I was in legislature, served 12 years, 12 years, but four years as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, which is one of the uh, most pivotal uh, roles in the legislature. And so I called her and I said, you know, basically, can I have your support at the convention? 
And she said, well, William, you've done an incredible job in the legislature. I am so proud of the work that you've done on gun violence, on criminal justice reform, on civil rights. You're, you're just, you're wonderful in the legislature. And I said, so I can count on your vote then. And she said, no, I'm sorry. I'm not voting for you. And I said, why? She said, you just don't look like what I think an attorney general should look like. And we all know what she was saying. We all know what she was saying. And that in that moment, people ask me, how did you respond? And, and I, I wish I could tell you I had some snappy comeback or grandiloquent response. I just couldn't get off the phone fast enough. It hurt that much and sticks with me to this day. That's how I wake up every morning. That's Connecticut Attorney General William Tong in a Zoom panel discussion I moderated recently for the University of Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, and the Connecticut Mirror. Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, was also on the panel with Dana Peterson, executive vice president and chief economist at the conference board. More after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're listening to a conversation I moderated recently that focused on the economic impacts of racism on individuals and the nation. It was part of a special series from University of Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, and the Connecticut Mirror. The panelists were Connecticut Attorney General William Tong, Dana Peterson, Executive Vice President and Chief Economist at the Conference Board, and Jay Williams, President of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. When we talk about the emotional uh, impact of these these comments, right, uh, directed towards people of color every day, no matter what they've achieved or you know who they are, but we know that studies also show, and I'll go back to you, Jay, that you know people who experience racism suffer both physical and mental health issues, including post-traumatic stress. So why isn't this discussed more? And what is the impact on the children in our state? You're right. And when you talked about, you know, all three of the panels talked about how far back this goes, just the title of this session, A House Divided. I mean, that that term has its origins in scripture, but it also was used by Abraham Lincoln over 160 years ago uh, when he was uh, giving a speech. And it was when the country was facing the proposition of whether or not you know, slavery was going to be the norm or, or, or whether uh, the abolitionist movement was going to prevail. And, and clearly, while slavery was abolished, the seeds of racism were planted and they still manifest and germinate uh, and bear fruit today. And to your point, Lucy, the social, emotional, the psychological impacts uh, that uh, are borne by blacks and people of color have a significant uh, uh, detrimental and adverse uh, effect. And that is a weight that uh, many of our young people carry with us. I'll, I'll speak from my own experience of having uh, an 11-year-old son. And there are conversations that I have and have to have with my son uh, as a young uh, Black boy uh, growing up uh, that um, try to explain to him that, uh, you know, the way that he, the values that we're instilling in him, the, 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 the things that he will experience and the mistakes that he will make are our, our natural part of growing up, but that there is also a level of consciousness he has to have. And try to imagine not overburdening 11-year-old with the fact that, you know, being Black has a, has a different set of circumstances in this, but yet and still wanting him to enjoy the innocence uh, and the adventures of childhood. So 
you know, we're fortunate. My wife and I, uh, and my wife is, 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 you know, is pursuing her master's degree in licensed clinical counseling. So we're fortunate to have a set of, of tools, hopefully, and supports that will help him navigate that. But I realize that that is not the, the case for so many other young people, young boys and girls uh, who, who go through this. So, you know, it isn't comfortable to talk about. Uh, sometimes there's an expectation just, uh, you know, deal with it or press through it. Um, sometimes there's an expectation, well, you know, the uh, perceived inferiority is just the norm. That's just, that's just the cultural struggle of Black people uh, because somehow, uh, you know, they've gotten themselves into these circumstances and situations with no acknowledgement of the structural and systemic, uh, you know, uh, systems uh, that have really perpetuated this for so many years. So that social, emotional, psychological uh, burden is, is very real. Uh, and we see it manifest itself in a variety of ways, in the educational system, uh, in the contact and interaction that Blacks and people of color have with the, with the legal system, the financial system. It is just, I'm not sure that there is a place in society uh, that it doesn't manifest itself in some adverse way uh, over the course of, of the lives of, of people of color. Attorney General Tong, let's get into the systemic um, reasons, uh, especially in our state, of why Connecticut has become what it is today, these two Connecticut's. Uh, when we think about uh, your upbringing and, and what you noticed in terms of, uh, you know, are some things historical accident versus uh, intentional discriminatory practices? You know, how do we have this conversation? Because as Jay mentioned, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think we all know that um, a lot of the effects are not accidental; they're intentional. And you know, as as we talk through this in Dana's story about not wanting her picture right associated with her email, you know, why did she do that? Because she didn't want people to know that she's a black woman um, and make judgments about her and assumptions about her um, without getting a chance to engage with her and. That happens every every single day in schools, in workplaces, uh, in public spaces across the state. You know, if if people don't think I look like what an attorney general should look like, I, I am sure in classrooms across the state, children are told every single day because of what they look like, that they don't look like what a journalist should look like. We caught a few breaks along the way too, and it could have easily gone the other way. And and Lucy, I I've talked to you about this. You remember the. Huang family of, of Simsbury, they own a nail salon. And um, during the Trump presidency, they were nearly deported um, in early 2018. We were able to, to help them stay in this country. But the, the reason why I got engaged in that is people in Simsbury and Farmington rose up, their customers, and they demonstrated and said, we want to save these people and this family to... Um, Chinese immigrants with two uh, American-born sons. But the reason why I got engaged is because my sister is a journalist. She sent me a text and forwarded an article about the Huangs. And she just sent me a simple message. That could easily be us. If life had just taken one, you know, one turn to the left by five degrees, it could easily be us. And we could be in a very different place. And so... Um, I think you see that across the state, that people don't have the same opportunities. They suffer from these structural barriers, and it's very hard to break through them. 
Dana, going back to your report, looking at the economic impact and and when you look at housing across our country and the idea of how this is a way uh, to build wealth and how that has been something that a barrier uh, for many uh, people of color. Can you talk about what your study has found? Sure, it's interesting just hearing about um, actions and activities to restrict zoning um, to keep communities out. Uh, this is not new. I mean, you can go back more than a century and where you had um, communities, governments, individuals, and even in the financial sector, uh, all working together, insurers and financiers, all working together to keep neighborhoods um, looking a certain way um, and keeping you know, communities of color out of neighborhoods. Um, and so while some of those laws may have changed and you know, insurance companies uh, try not to redline, you still have these actions, right? And it comes through you know, changing zoning. Um, it comes through realtors having codes for certain neighborhoods and steering families sort of, you know, to this neighborhood instead of that neighborhood. Um, and these kinds of things are still going on. And even, for example, um, there was a recent, in the last few years, that you know, one of the big uh, tech companies had like a real estate finding um, app and the app was being discriminatory and it's the app is not itself discriminatory it's just reflecting attitudes um, that of the people who are, are building it and so I mean none of this is surprising to me and I think that um, you know what's what's key is that we, we have these conversations um, for the most part I haven't really received a ton of pushback about the report but one key thing that has come up is that people see this as a zero-sum game, right? That if I let so-and-so into my neighborhood or if, or if you know, someone, someone else you know, who looks different from I do gets that job, that it's going to negatively affect me. And we really need to think about growing the pie, right? Um, especially when you think about the business world. If a company says it's not interested in you know, making sure that it's, it's staffing and it's a supply chain or more diverse, then they're saying that they're, they're not interested in growing, right? Because if, if you're not growing, then you do have a sort of some game. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly more conversations and helping people to understand not, not, not just the current circumstances, but how we got here, right? And that many of those attitudes may not have changed and people you know, their behaviors uh, indicate that they think this is a zero-sum game and that you know, if anyone else gains, that it's a loss for them. And really, when it comes to society and companies, a lot of times it's about growth. And the paper itself tells us that, you know, if you get rid of <laughs> these things, um, which are difficult, as Jay said, but if you, if you work towards it, then everyone benefits. Okay. See, if, if I can just add, I, I completely agree with Dana that it is not a zero-sum game, that we need to grow the, grow the pie, grow the economy. But I also like to add a little caveat that, that we do have to acknowledge if there, has been, if there have been systemic and intentional policies and approaches that have allowed uh, individuals or groups of individuals to benefit at the expense of others. When you level the playing field, it does mean that perhaps there are going to be others who can compete more effectively. There are going to be others who are now given opportunities that if you were being unjustly enriched because others were being held back and you say, now let's have a level playing field, 
and let everybody compete on their own merits and not have artificial barriers, it might mean that someone who was getting, you know, X may get a little less than X, not because the system should now uh, benefit unfairly others, but because there is a level playing field. So I'm all about growing the pie, but I also think it's important to, to, to note that a lot of the wealth that has been obtained isn't because a group of people were more uh, ingenious or more intelligent, but if, if my ancestors or our, our ancestors didn't have an opportunity to, to purchase property or to have access to capital to start their businesses, and now they do, then that means that they have an opportunity to, to, to participate in that wealth building too. So growing the pie is absolutely the right way to do it, but we also have to acknowledge that some may have less, not because uh, something's being taken from them, but because others are now able to more fairly and equitably compete. Attorney General Tom. Yeah, if I may, I think related to that is um, the racist and hateful phenomenon of scapegoating. And so I think on the one hand, if you look at it as a zero sum game, you can sort of rationally say, well, people are, are, are being unreasonable, right? They're, they're thinking that there's a zero sum game, there's a limited pie, and I'm trying to hold other people back because of their race. Um, because they may take from me and also because I don't like them because of what they look like and who they are. That's one way of looking at it. But, but there's also uh, another force that's related, which is um, people may think that, that their share, their portion of the pie is limited because of somebody else, because of who they are and what they did to them. And there's a lot of blame and scapegoating. And, and frankly, a lot of that's happening to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders right now, um, where people point the finger either economically that, that um, you know, people from Asia and particularly China are responsible for taking jobs or economic opportunity or growth away from America and American companies, or just blaming them for the pandemic calling it calling it the China virus or the Kung flu. So I think related to this 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 zero sum uh, idea is also this scapegoating and how racism is used as a tool and a weapon for people to blame others for their own for their own misfortune uh, or perceived misfortune. I think when we look at what's happening in current events, you know, the talk about, you know, the fear of, of, of what leveling the playing field really means, or frankly, understanding our history to understand how we got to this place. I can't help but think of what we're seeing in communities, not only uh, in other uh, red states, but here in Connecticut, in particular towns where you have parents and others upset about critical race theory the scapegoating, the blame game. I'm wondering if our panelists can talk about that. Uh, Dana or Jay, would you like to start? Dana, you wanna start? Um, <laughs> sure. I guess the thing is that I'm not an attorney and so I don't know all the details about you know critical race theory and it was born out of the legal profession. And But what I do know is that it was a, it's essentially a framework for looking at racism in the United States and where even, you know, historically, even when there were attempts at redress, it was still from a perspective of, you know, lesser beings, right? So for example, um, I think Brown versus the Board of Education, the thought was, well, we should, we should allow integration because it would be good for 
the black students to be around the white students. <laughs> so as opposed to, you know, these students are all, you know, equal human beings and capable of, of the same achievements and uh, both are sets are capable of learning. So I think, um, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the principle is. Um, what, what is it? And then, um, you know, elements in terms of people thinking, well, it's, um, you know, the first principle is that, you know, we, we can blame an entire group of people, even people living now for, for the sins of the past. And I, I don't think that's necessarily what the goal is. It's, again, it's a framework. And I think that, you know, ideally, you know, we should want to learn from our past so that we don't repeat those things. Um, and I mean, there's no, there's no arguing from an economic perspective that when the United States was, you know, founded that the economy was based upon, you know, slavery and indentured servitude. So, that, I mean, that's just, that's just in the history books and, and we shouldn't ignore that, but we should try to learn from that and how we can make sure that those inequities and those things, those tragedies that happen aren't repeated today in our modern context. Let's hear from the attorney. So, so I am an attorney um, and I play one on TV, I guess. Um, and let me just be really clear about this. I, I feel very strongly about it. This whole issue, this debate is absurd. It was started, this controversy was started by Donald Trump in a presidential election to divide people and drive his base out to vote for him, period. It's driven by hate and a message of hate and division. The idea, by the way, that racism and race is present and challenges and infects every public and private institution in this country is not a new idea, nor is it controversial. It happens to be true. And we learn this as, 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 as kids and, and in high schools, well before anybody put a label on it, right? This is just sort of basic and, and, and part of our fullest understanding, right, of how we got here, your question earlier of how we got here. And anybody who denies that is either wrong, ignorant, or hateful. That's Connecticut Attorney General William Tong in a Zoom panel discussion I moderated recently for the University of Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, and the Connecticut Mirror. Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, was also on the panel with Dana Peterson, executive vice president and chief economist at the conference board. More after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening to a recent conversation I moderated that examines how racism keeps people of color from reaching their potential and how racism negatively affects our economy. The panelists included Connecticut Attorney General William Tong and Dana Peterson, Executive Vice President and Chief Economist at the Conference Board. I asked third panelist Jay Williams, President of Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, about the disparities in our state. Jay, uh, you know, we talked about this, this whole conversation is about the two Connecticut's and uh, the policies um, that got us here. And I'm wondering, is this unique to Connecticut as the, the former mayor of Youngstown, Ohio? Is there, but was there two Ohio's? There were two Ohio's. This is not because there are two Americas. This is not unique to Connecticut. It, it is perhaps more pronounced in Connecticut because of the 
wealth disparities, the level of inequity, the concentration of poverty uh, in a handful of mid-sized cities, whether it be Hartford or New Haven or Bridgeport or Waterbury uh, versus the rest of the state. So it is by no means unique to Connecticut, but Connecticut is one of the states with the highest uh, degree of inequity and disparity on virtually every measure that you can think of economic, health, educational attainment, uh, and otherwise. Dana, I wanted to go back to you to, to get back to the economy and the impact the racism has on it. When we look at states, including Connecticut, having set-asides or grant programs aimed at helping businesses owned by people of color, by women, do they work? Is there any room for reform? I think there's always room for improvement. Um, I think one great thing out of the tragedies of last year um, is that many financial firms stepped up and they said, you know what, a lot of the wealth disparity and income disparity uh, lies at our doorstep. I mean, we are the gatekeepers to capital. Um, in turn, we, we in part determine who gets to own a home uh, to build wealth, that intergenerational wealth that you mentioned. We're the gatekeepers in terms of who has access to capital, um, you know, traditional forms of capital, banking, um, and, and even, you know, uh, thinking about how banks are starting to invest in venture capital firms and partner with them, startups and things like that. They're the gatekeepers. And so uh, something close to $50 billion was committed by financial firms towards um, DE&I initiatives and, and equity um, and making sure that there's, there's fairness in terms of the issuance of capital. Um, and I think that's that's just so important. But the first thing many of these financial firms had to do was look inwardly and say to themselves, well, you know, it's one thing to spout a message to the populist society about what we're going to do externally, but what do we look like internally, making sure that we ourselves have the proper initiatives, that we're not doing things to hold people back, you know, from advancing in their careers, from having that mobility, that stretch assignment, um, getting promoted, um, also making sure that our boards are more reflective of our you know, society and also our customers, right? And that you can't just have one person <laughs> who's different on the board because uh, that person's going to be a very lonely person and that you need many people um, of different perspectives, including uh, different races and genders. Um, and so I, I think that... Um, you know, this, again, from the tragedies of last year, you've seen this uh, awakening amongst financial firms in particular, that they play a huge role in helping to eradicate some of these gaps, particularly the gaps that are related to uh, wealth. Can we talk about the tax system? I'm getting a, a question uh, from the audience uh, uh, citing Dorothy Brown's book, The Whiteness of Wealth a focus on how tax systems impoverish Black Americans. So can you connect a, a few dots pertaining to the systemic or institutional racism we've talked about here in our state? Um, sure, I can, I can jump in. Um, uh, one thing that, that we found in the research is that when you look at the accumulation of, of home equity over the last, since the great financial crisis, since the housing boom, um, predominantly white, uh, communities saw tremendous gains in the equity of their homes, but predominantly 
uh, communities that were predominantly of color actually saw a negative. <laughs> they saw their value, home values go down. And it's more often than not that these homes are undervalued. And even, in, indeed, there was a report by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that was published this week um, that indicated um, that it's, it's uh, oh no, it wasn't the Federal Reserve. I think it was Freddie Mac or one of the GSEs that it's it's just routine that these these homes for persons of color, families of color, are routinely underassessed. So why is that happening? Um, and so there's no clear answer to that. And you know, one answer is well, bias, right? And so what should be done about this? Well, there should be an examination of the systems and the underwriting rules and and and. Um, uh, you know, everything involved with home purchases um, to make sure that you don't have these inherent biases that deny people the right and the ability to accumulate income and to accumulate wealth and be a part of that, that American dream. Well, Attorney General Tom, when we talk about the racial wealth gap, you know, we have uh, thought leaders and others talking about reparations. Is there a strong moral argument to this or where, how do we get this idea promoted politically or is it something that's a non-starter? Um, when you say the word reparations, you know, that sets off a lot of reactions from people. To me, it, it, it is to me a message about repairing the damage that's been done by structural institutional racism, affirmative overt hate and racism. And, and what, are, what are the most effective means of delivering um, that repair, right? And, and on the one hand, people talk about compensation. On the other hand, we're talking about investment in schools, um, institutional investments in infrastructure and in, in urban communities, transportation, right? One of the things that we were just talking about um, um, in terms of the tax system and then relatedly the housing system um, I live in Stanford, which uh, many people consider to be the economic engine of, of our state, you know, one of the most successful, economically successful cities in the Northeast. That means there's a lot of gentrification going on. And um, it's really important that people not get displaced and that we have 10, 20% affordable housing requirements in new developments to keep people in um, to keep people not only in the neighborhoods in which they grew up, but make sure that people have access to these new developments and that people don't just get marginalized and pushed into communities that then get systemically undervalued, right? When you buy a house there. So um, I think all of that is part of the overall question of repair. And, and you know, I think all of us could, could, could come up with a, a very long list of investments that are that are underfunded. Um, I'm sure Jay has a list too long uh, to show, um, you know, in this short hour of all the things that we could invest in that would that would provide that repair that's so needed in these communities. Yeah. I, I, I do think repair is needed, and I appreciate and I agree with Attorney General Tong in terms of focusing on 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 the word repair. But but let's be clear: this country has paid historically reparations. This country has uh, compensated financially uh, aggrieved parties, uh, and, and history shows 
reparations were paid to uh, slave owners uh, that were, uh, um, it's hard to even say that sort of whose property people was were 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 removed or lost. So payment, financial payment of reparations is not a new concept in this country. But I think a more productive uh, discussion is around how do we repair, whether it's through investments, uh, whether it's through tax policy, uh, whether it's through any number of ways. So I think if we focus on the need to repair uh, in the multiple paths there are to repair, perhaps we can uh, you know find some actions and paths forward as opposed to uh, what the, again, critics would want you to think is reparations is simply writing checks to uh, groups of people who, in their telling, uh, aren't uh, responsible or would not make use or are undeserving. So, you know, if we can get past all the controversy, the repair that Attorney uh, Tong talked about, uh, to me, is, is certainly something meritorious of, of discussion. You know, what's your take? <laughs> <laughs> This is, you know, this is a tough topic because, um, you know, Jay is absolutely right. Historically, there have been instances where parties were were repaired um, and received, um, you know, land or finances to pay for a loss. Um, the complication is, you know, fast forward to now, where you have people who say, well, you know, I you know, that those are my ancestors. I, I wasn't involved in, in those things. Um, and then, you know, the argument is, well, some, some of you are benefiting from things that happened, you know, years ago when, you know, your parents and grandparents were, you know, benefited from the GI Bill. Um, they were allowed to move to the suburbs and buy homes and accumulate wealth. And, you know, someone else's grandparents were not allowed to do that. Um, they were forbidden. So they never were able to make those investments and generate their own forms of wealth. Um, so I think that, you know, certainly the prospect is not foreign and certainly, you know, the U.S. can, can do whatever it wants to do and has done um, reparations for different groups. But I, I agree with Attorney General Tong that, you know, because the issues are structural, that um, potentially, you know, we're just writing checks to individuals is not the best thing to do, right? Um, uh, but investing in ways to, again, eliminate the gaps, right? And make sure that there's a benefit to the broader society um, as you're benefiting, you know, individuals that, you know, do have an adequate, you know, uh, grievance and claim. Uh, and, you know, I just think about, uh, you know, the Tulsa riots and, there's a plaque there that has an estimate of how much money was lost. And I'm not sure if that was in, you know, the 2021, I'm sorry, 1921 dollars, or if that's cumulative, but either way, it's in the billions, right? And yet those people have never been compensated, right? They've never received any recompense. And so, and if you think about all the businesses that, you know, weren't perpetuated and the families that were destroyed, um, from that and all the general generational wealth that was not created, um, then an entire town and society. And also, uh, there's a study that shows that people who had knowledge of that event were less likely to invest in housing because and businesses because of fear that the same thing would happen to them. And so it became the structural, you know, a singular event in one area became a structural issue. So I think that the solutions definitely 
have to be structural and that we need to help people understand that, again, this is going to help everybody, right? It's not helpful to have entire cities where people are impoverished, right? Um, and that there's crime and death and those kinds of things. It's beneficial for everyone if we invest to make lives of everyone better. That was Dana Peterson, Executive Vice President and Chief Economist at the Conference Board, speaking on a Zoom panel with Connecticut Attorney General William Tong and Jay Williams, President of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. More info about the next conversation in the Two Connecticut series is at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Special thanks to the University of Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, and the Connecticut Mirror. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.